Our guest today is Jim Lehrer, one of the most familiar names in American journalism. He began a career as a reporter with the Dallas Morning News in 1959. For the past 13 years, he's anchored PBS's well-regarded The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, which, where he also serves as executive editor. This was preceded for two decades by a legendary on-air partnership with Robert McNeil. Jim Lehrer has won many awards over the years, including the Peabody Award, the Fred Friendly First Amendment Award, and the National Humanities Medal. In the last six presidential elections, Mr. Lehrer has served as moderator in 11 nationally televised candidate debates. He is also an author of three plays, two memoirs, and 19 novels, the most recent of which, titled Oh Johnny, is out currently. Jim Lehrer is appearing this Thursday evening at 7.30 p.m. at the Crest Theater in Sacramento as part of the California Lecture Series. We're very pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Jim Lehrer. Hey, thanks, Doug. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I was surprised to realize that, A, you've been solo at the News Hour now for 13 years, because many, many people still think of it as McNeil Lair, and that Robert McNeil is still contributing as co-producer. I will always think of it as McNeil Lair, <laughs> so you can be pardoned that. If you see it at the very beginning of the program, you can see that, that, that title, McNeil Lair, kind of in the background at the beginning of the program. Always, McNeil will always have a, a ghostly presence, <laughs> if not a real presence, on the program. Well, I, I was surprised to realize that you've been very prolific as an author, especially of fiction, turning out about a volume a year. At least one book was made into a movie. So I'm gathering that meeting news deadlines must be good practice for novels. The, I'm the, uh, the epitome of the Hemingway generation product. The, Hemingway said if you want to, you want to uh, write fiction, get a job on a newspaper because it'll force you to deal with the language in some semi-coherent way. It'll put bread on the table. And if you pay attention, you'll come across interesting people and situations that you can later use in your fiction writing. Well, that's exactly what I did, and I've been doing them simultaneously since I was about 17, 18 years old. I've had my journalism side, my nonfiction side, and I've had my fiction side writing my stories. It's just that people know more about my nonfiction side than they do my fiction side, so be it. Maybe someday it'll, it'll reverse, but I'm, I'm very pleased that I can do both and delighted. Well, do you find it relaxing to write and get away from the pressures of reporting, and, and, and is it more enjoyable to write fiction? Well, see, I enjoy both of them. I, I am one of the really, truly fortunate people. You know, one of the worst things to do, at least in my opinion, is to be around somebody who's fortunate and doesn't know it. Well, you're not around one right now. Let me tell you, I know I'm fortunate because I can do both of them, and I enjoy, enjoy them. I won't say equally. I don't even think of them in those terms. I just They're both of them an integral part of my life. I work a little bit every day on my fiction writing. I get up early in the morning. I do, uh, uh, it may not always be writing new wonderful sentences. It may just be doing some research or doing some editing or something, but I'm doing something uh, having to do with my fiction writing every day. And then, of course, being in daily journalism as long as I have been now with the news hour all these years, that's also a part of my life. And I enjoy both of them. And the satisfactions interestingly enough, are different enough that they don't, they don't bump into each other. They, well, in fact, they complement each other. Well, I have a question about your new work, Oh Johnny. The protagonist goes off to war in the Pacific and becomes a marine flamethrower operator, and you, and you paint a rather vivid picture of, of that weapon, which basically sprayed napalm onto people. 
that weapon's not something I'd give much thought to since I think playing soldier as a boy. And, and I, my question is, as a Marine, did you meet men who'd wielded those weapons? Well, I was a Marine myself, and uh, in fact, was the, uh, this was after World War II. I was in the Marines in the 1950s and was actually an infantry platoon officer, uh, a platoon leader, and at one time uh, one of my platoons was a, uh, what they called an anti-tank assault platoon, which included mm-hmm. flamethrowers. So I was very familiar with flamethrowers. But in World War II, my story, my fictional story, as you say, oh, Johnny, he's a kid who uh, wants to be a Major League Baseball player, and he's got all the dreams and all the talents, and uh, unfortunately the war comes along and, and uh, as you say, becomes a flamethrower operator in the Battle of Peleliu and the Battle of Okinawa, two battles, at, two very bloody battles in the, in the Pacific. And it changes him forever because he has also, on the way to the Pacific, uh, he's, been on, he's on a troop train going from the East Coast to the West, and uh, the troop train makes a stop in a place called Wichita, Kansas, which, by the way, happens to be my hometown. Right. But at any rate, uh, it's a 1944, and he runs into the young women there who would meet the, tro- the troops. They would s- stop there to kind of kind of uh, stretch and all of that, and, the, and the, these young women would give them cigarettes and apples and all of that. And he has, Johnny, has an encounter with this magnificently beautiful, gorgeous young woman and uh, and it changes his life because he can't find her afterward and all of that. And that's essentially the story. And his dreams kind of are are are, are part of uh, his baseball dreams are also now part of trying to find this girl after the war. And it gets rather complicated. And his his uh, as he goes about his his quest to make his dreams come true. And and I read that you you when you write sometimes you go to your hometown check into a hotel to work and and I'm gathering this story must have come out of maybe some stories of of what people did in Wichita as those trains were moving through town. That's exactly right. I was there. I go to Wichita every once in a while. In fact, I've just come from Wichita doing that very thing. And uh, but I was there oh three or four years ago, and I was sitting in a uh, in a restaurant in an old warehouse had been converted into a restaurant that's literally right next to the old Union Station building in Wichita, which is still there, where those real train, troop trains stopped. And I was just looking out the window, and I saw the spot exactly where I was as a little boy with my father and my brother watching a bunch of Marines. Uh, there was an elevated overpass uh, railroad track uh, place where they stopped at the station and we were down below anyhow we just waved to the marines anyhow i saw that scene uh, as i say three or four years ago and then i got to thinking oh my goodness what if what if what if what if so that's where it all started when, you, when you're off on a book tour like this in kansas new mexico california etc are you able to leave the news hour behind or did you have to keep in touch with the team of what, what's going to be covered well you know i keep in touch with the team i i'm also a believer though that you know, the, one of the great things about doing our program, as long as we've been doing it, at least we don't have to wake up every day and say, who are we and why do we do what we do? Now, that we have an ongoing philosophy that uh, keeps us from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday to Friday. So I'm not necessarily there, I'm necessary there to, uh, to kind of be the, uh, the office chaplain. People who are in charge while I'm gone also have the right to uh, not be interfered with. So I, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I want to... I stay, I stay very much in touch, and I stay very much in tune, but I try very much to stay, keep the heavy hand off when I'm not there. <laughs> but uh, but right. it's hard. <laughs> I'd right. just be honest about it, Doug. I mean, you know, I'm responsible, and, and I feel responsible, and, uh, but it's, uh, for the most part, I stay, out of the, I stay out of their hair. 
Well, Jim, I want to ask you about a fascinating panel discussion I saw years ago on television. It was it was about the reporting on the assassination of President Kennedy. And in it, you described how you covered events for the Dallas Morning News. And your future collaborator, Robin McNeil, was actually in the motorcade that day. And it did seem that so many journalists established themselves by their coverage of those events at that time. No, that's really true, Doug. There's an awful lot of folks that, uh, some, some still in business. Uh, I, for one, Bob Schieffer for another. Schieffer worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram then, also very much involved in the coverage uh, of the assassination. Dan Rather, uh, who, who was there uh, working for a local CBS affiliate. Uh, there, Hugh Ainsworth, a famous investigative reporter. There were a lot, a lot of folks. It was, uh, it was a monumental event as, as uh, for anybody in the in the in the world. Period, uh, but particularly an American, and particularly an American journalist, and to be right there on the ground when it all happened, and to be involved in the coverage, as I was, it's something that uh, I knew at the time. In fact, I said that uh, we, we, some of us talked about it. Will, will there ever be anything like this again? And we. We all conceded there never will be, and there hasn't been. It was the, the kind of the ultimate experience for for a journalist because here you had a story that that you knew as it was unfolding in front of you that uh, there it was not only a mystery, it was also a it was momentous in ter- It was going to literally uh, change the course of history, which it did do in many many ways, and. Because you, all you have to do is just go back down the road. So, well, what if? What if Kennedy had not been shot? What would what if, what, what would have happened in Vietnam? What would have happened here? What, what about Lyndon Johnson? What about you? Just keep going through the what ifs. Yeah. And from a from a journalistic point of view of just being a simple reporter, it was uh, it was extraordinary, and my memories of it are very vivid. In fact, the novel I'm working on now on the road has a little uh, of the presidential. Uh, the Kennedy assassination elements in, in it, as a, as a matter of fact. I just have to ask, out of my own curiosity, I know you actually covered uh, the case as the federal reporter for the morning news for months. Uh, did, the Times-Herald, actually. I was with oh. the, by then, I was with the Times-Herald, the afternoon paper, right. Well, just a simple question. Did, do you accept that the president's murder was simply the work of a disturbed ex-Marine? Well, I, 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 I don't know if accept is the, is the word. I, uh, up to, I have always believed that it was possible that on any given day, you know, the, ban- the, the, the wires might move to say that somebody on his, on his or her deathbed has confessed that uh, they were really Oswald's driver and they were part of a conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, that's never happened. And there are an awful lot of people who have spent an awful lot of time and energy trying to uncover a conspiracy, prove there was a conspiracy or whatever, and up to this point, they have not been able to do that. And uh, I think I think any any person and and I'm a, I'm not a disinterested person because of my early involvement, and yeah. I still follow it not 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 religiously, but I follow it. I have not seen any conclusive evidence that they, that it was anything other than what you just said: a lone person disturbed, uh, operating alone, uh, a a perfect storm in terms of. Firing three shots and boom, uh, and the president was dead. Fair enough. You, you've said that the you think the number one job the news media has is to watch what the government's doing and report on it in order to hold elected officials accountable. How good a job do you think the media has done, especially in recent years? Oh, it's it's uh, it's it's spotty. Sometimes there's some brilliant. There's been some brilliant reporting done. Uh, you, more re- most recently, you know what the Washington Post did say in the Walter Reed situation, where they watched the government not take care of veterans after uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. 
there have been many other examples of, of that at all levels, at the local level, county, state, and uh, national as well as international level. Uh, we, the, I think the real problem we have now is uh, our business is in a, uh, going through a revolution, to put it mildly. Uh, uh, people, a lot of newspapers are having financial problems, and as are television operate, news operations, and uh, the whole news business has not been able to find a viable financial model for making money for serious journalism, and uh, until they do, we're going to have a problem. But it's uh, uh, it, it generally, uh, I think everybody's still still trying, but it with uh, but the resources are are diminishing, and uh, at least the serious journalism uh, resources are diminishing. There's no diminishment of voices to be heard and ways to be heard in terms of the internet and and uh, uh, screen radio and uh, and talk uh, cable television, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, just serious, uh, okay, What? tell me what happened before you start telling me what it means and all that. That first step of journalism, the tell me what happens uh, step, is uh, having some problems now. When you were preceded in Sacramento uh, not too long ago by Bob Woodward, who came here and decried the fact that uh, what gets on, for example, a Google splash page comes from some algorithm judging who's using the story. Woodward said that uh, no newsman would regard a lot of this stuff as important, yet it often gets advanced. Uh, are you worrying about how the Internet has come to sift the news? Well, exactly. Uh, it's a, uh, I'm a big believer in more, more the merrier. In other words, uh, the more information we have out there, the better off we all are going to be and better informed we're going to be. But what I'm concerned about is that so many people appear, I can't prove this, but appear to be picking up the information chain laid in the chain. In other words, we just they don't hear about it until somebody's giving a strong opinion about it. And uh, and then the question has to be, well, yeah, but, but did that really happen that way? Did, did he really say that? And so we need to go back to did it really happen that way? Did he really say that part? That's what, as I say, that's what, uh, that's what, uh, what concerns me. And there need to be a, you know, they, it's an old-fashioned term in journalism called gatekeeper. I'm a gatekeeper. I'm the executive editor of the News Hour, right? And um, and a producer in television is that, or an editor of a newspaper or a magazine or a radio broadcast, whatever. Those are the folks that sift through the stories and say, okay, this one is more important than that one. We're going to use this one. We're not going to use that one. We're going to run this one long. We're going to run this one short, and all of that. Those have those gatekeepers have to have credibility. They have to have earned trust, and uh, it doesn't make it. Do, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from or whatever. But it has to be. They have to be trusted by the by the people who listen to them or read read their product. And uh, uh, that part of it concerns me because that to me is a fundamental function of journalism, and uh, we must never forget that. Well, speaking of trust, you, you'd said something in a previous interview I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you noted that in presidential debates that even if someone just asks, what's your favorite color, a person might learn a great deal from a candidate's body language and how, how they respond. And given that you're someone who deals in words, I find that to be sort of a fascinating observation on the importance of nonverbal communication. And do you find that's really sometimes a key to judging a person's credibility? Well, rightly or wrongly, yes. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. The uh, 2008, the first of the 2008 presidential debates between Obama and uh, McCain. I happen to be the moderator, unrelated to this story, but the fact is, remember, the, the financial crisis had hit. Uh, uh, 
Uh, McCade was a little up in the up in the air about what he wanted to do. He stopped campaigning. wasn't sure he was going to come to the debate. He was agitated, and in his state of agitation, when he finally came on the stage and did the debate with um, Obama, and that state of agitation came over to the people who were watching, and that compared with a state of absolute calm that it seemed to appear on uh, appear with Obama, and uh, I think. Uh, now, some people were turned off by uh, McCain's agitation, some with Obama's whatever, but anyhow, it said as much as their words did about, uh, uh, and the polls showed that, about uh, uh, who is best suited to, you know, run the country at a time of, of crisis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the body language in that debate uh, said a lot and was uh, considered by a lot to be a, a semi-turning point in that campaign. And as someone who's moderated so many debates, I just can't resist asking this question. Uh, could there have been something to those pictures of George W. Bush with the lump under his clothes when he was debating no. John Kerry? No, 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 no. Okay. It was just, it was, no, 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 no. That was just the way his coat uh, hung, I promise you. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I, I just have a, a couple questions left. There was, there was a large scandal last year about how the Pentagon was caught influencing the spin of the analysts that were being used by the news networks. Could you, could you comment a bit on that? Well, that had to do with former generals and admirals, uh, and, and they were, the idea was uh, were there too many of them being briefed by officially, unofficially, but officially, uh, and then going on television and uh, giving the, quote, party line, uh, the Pentagon line, uh, as it related to Iraq and all of that. And they, there were also some others who were cited for, some generals who were cited as being consultants uh, to various uh, defense contractors, uh, and those folks came on television and talked about, uh, or talked about some weapons that the company they may be consulting uh, uh, had, had some involvement in. And, but it, uh, they did a big investigation of it, and I, the, the, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of anticlimactic. There was never, they never, no pun intended. They never came up with a real smoking gun here. That, that G- former General Wawa uh, took money from Corporation X, and as a result of that, Corporation X got a contract to build a new uh, submachine gun, uh, or a new flint. Let's put it. Let's keep it. Keep it on track here. A new flamethrower <laughs> for for the Marines, mm-hmm. and uh, so they never were able to do. Uh, they they were never able to prove anything like that. And the practice has pretty well been cur- curtailed. The uh, uh, they don't no longer brief these guys, uh, these former uh, general. But but look, when when war comes, the television con- the television, including us. I mean, we're not exempt from this. Uh, television programs and and those who who in the printed press who want to get insights into. Uh, uh, combat tactics and uh, and uh, and the use of particular weapons and all of that. Uh, who better to go to than the experts? And who are the experts? Well, they're the people who have been in the military. So it's a natural thing to go. In other words, if you got a sporting event and you want a commentator, you usually get a former football player and a former baseball player. So it's the same thing. Uh, the only issue is was there any kind of ulterior connection? As I say, there's some been some allegations, but as far unless I miss something. Uh, the, the big smoking gun is yet to be uncovered. Well, just one final question uh, sure. about, about Ojani, which which I enjoyed. I was I was pulling for Johnny all the way. 
Uh, <laughs> he's a good guy. Really, I'm glad to hear you say that, Doug. I really like that kid. By the time I got through uh, through with him, I felt sorry for him, and I liked him very much. And I'm glad you did too, Doug. I did. But uh, in the book, you have some some prominent uh, subplots of traveling around on buses. And according to Wikipedia, you're a bus enthusiast, having supported the Pacific Bus Museum, which is in nearby Williams, not too far from us. Uh, can you tell oh, us yeah. about about your interest in buses? Well, I grew up in buses. My dad uh, worked in the bus business all his life. I was uh, when I went to a little junior college in South Texas in the 1950s, and I worked as a ticket agent at Trailways Bus Depot. In fact, I can still call the buses from Victoria, <laughs> Texas, and so I have a lot of bus connections. And I started uh, years ago collecting bus memorabilia, bus drivers' cap badges, and and uh, antique toy buses, bus depot signs. And you're right, the California Bus Museum. There in Williams, uh, I'm a member. Have been for 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 years, and it's a uh, it's a terrific thing. There aren't many of us around. There are not many of us uh, bus fanatics around, but I'm a, I'm one of them, and I'm proud to be one. Well, I'm going to go check out the museum. It should complement our railroad museum we have here in town rather nicely. <laughs> oh, you have a great uh, railroad museum. In fact, I have my next novel, the one that's going to come out next, is called a uh, called Super, and it takes place on the Super Chief, and there's a a uh, a dining car from the Super Chief that's in the Railroad Museum in Sacramento, which I got some pictures of when I was working on my book. Outstanding. Yeah, I see. I got all kinds of connections. <laughs> Our guest has been Jim Lehrer. His newest novel, Oh Johnny, is out now. He continues to set standards for news with the News Lauer with Jim Lehrer. Mr. Lehrer appears tonight at 7.30 at the Crest Theater as part of the California Lectures series. And if you missed that, you'll get a second chance in Lafayette this Sunday, April 5th, which will be hosted by the Commonwealth Club, and you can check their website for details. Jim Lehrer, it's been a great honor, and I'll be at the audience at the Crest. That's great. I'll see you then, Doug. Thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Okay.